Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh12. We've got three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest internet newsletter uh, with entertainment. I screwed that up, but we'll just keep going. Weekly <laughs> since 1994. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer out at AskLeo.com. Gary? I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials pretty much every day. And I also make mobile games. You can find those at CleverMedia.com. And I also have the first story of the podcast. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, it's kind of a slow news week, a lot of little things. But pro if there has to be a a story that's being talked about the most it's maybe this google chrome thing so the deal here is you know google's warned about this for a while is that they decided to implement kind of a an ad blocker of sorts built into the chrome browser because the chrome browser now is the majority of of web the web browsers out there most people surfing the web i think it's like 60 percent or something maybe more are using chrome um and it's used Windows, it's Mac, and mobile browsers as well. And they decided to basically prevent some very obtrusive and obnoxious ads from showing. Now, they didn't just decide on, like, we're going to block a bunch of ads. But for the last year or so, there's been um, this kind of marketing standard that different companies have come together on and said, here's what's acceptable in online advertising, here's what's not. And the non-acceptable stuff are things like huge ads that take over your entire screen and blast sound at you and things like that. Uh, so they've come up with these rules, but they were just rules. Nobody had to really obey them. Uh, some ad blockers, third-party ad blockers said, well, we're going to use those rules to block ads. Um, and now Chrome has, they've said, basically, we're going to start doing that as of uh, today, yesterday, I don't know, uh, it's really recently here. Um, it's hard to see an effect because I went to a bunch of sites and the sites I got go to don't really use those obnoxious ads, so I didn't see any difference. Uh, the criticism is, of course, is that Google is the largest uh, advertising company with their AdSense product. Uh, most websites you go to, if you see ads, it has the little Google uh, AdSense notification there it's, that it's a Google AdSense ad. And of course, Google has stopped serving these types of ads if they ever did serve some of them. So they're basically saying, hey, we're going to block a lot of ad networks that did things uh, while not blocking our own ad, ad network because we never did these things. Um, so it's kind of... So it's know, a little bit controversial. It, yeah, it's got that little bit of controversy. I mean, if you want to look at it from that viewpoint, it's like not going to hurt Google by Google doing this, but it might hurt other websites and other um, ad networks by doing this. But then on the other hand, you're not going to find much sympathy from typical internet users, uh, none of whom I'm sure uh, like these types of ads. It's interesting that they've actually defined the criteria that the ads that they're blocking are based on a set of criteria on ad behavior. Um, there's, I, I learned a new term actually when I read this for the first time the other day, the pre-stitial. 
And that's the, uh, the full page ad that takes over the screen that you have to dismiss before you can get to the content you tried to get to. Um, which I thought was interesting because, uh, for example, Forbes.com, uh, leading business magazine's website does something very similar to that. They do, they, you have to dismiss, they include like a quote of a day or something like that. And I think there's an ad on that page. Is Google going to start blocking that? I don't know. What I did also find interesting was that in the, uh, uh, one of the, I think it was one of the blog posts from Google, they were very careful to say, oh no, we will blog or we will block any of our own ads that behave this way. Uh, so, you know, supposedly they will, again, block based on behavior. And if that happens to include their own ads from Google's AdSense or AdWords programs, well, so be it. But as you pointed out, Gary, um, in theory, those types of ads shouldn't be in the program to begin with. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of like saying, well, yeah, we're going to do that, but we're not really going to have to. Hmm. Yeah, and I just looked at the Forbes website because I certainly do so recall I. having that and it in, in Chrome and it yeah. It's of course they're probably getting away with it a little bit because they put that quote of the day there. It's not a pure ad, maybe. I don't um, know. I'm actually not convinced that the change is rolled out yet. Um I have I yeah. I you know, in doing various amounts of research for things, I run into all sorts of, of you know, good, bad, and ugly websites, and I've not noticed a single bit of change in the last couple of days. So, well, I've just gone to a couple of Forbes articles that did not put that. I remember that quote of the day thing, and it did not show that to me. But interesting. I don't know if there's a change or not. Maybe it's just in Forbes the process might just program. drop it because they don't want to fight with Google. I don't know. Well, that, and that's one of the interesting things is you know why is Google doing this? On one hand, they're you know hopefully making the experience better for people who use their browser, and maybe more people will use their browser. But on the other hand, maybe they are going to be influencing some of the advertising networks out there to stop some of this more aggressive behavior. And just to be clear, they're not blocking all ads, just these abusive ads. And exactly, yeah. because obviously they're an ad company too. That's how they make their their nut. So they're not going to block all ads, but sure, abusive ads, you know, it's, it's their browser. If they want to stop showing things, they can, and we can all decide if we don't want to do that, we can switch to Firefox or whatever. If, if they do one and only one thing, I want them to stop autoplay video ad, or videos, uh, yeah, whether they're absolutely. advertisements or not. Um, I do, you know, for the research I do for um, notallnewsisbad.com, I you know, will end up getting stories from various places. And they're often good stories that are sourced from uh, local TV stations. And the number of them that just start playing the video the moment you get there is just incredible. Um, and it's so annoying because that's not what I'm there for. And I actually, I feel really bad linking to those kinds of sites because I'm, ex- you know, I'm, I'm exposing my readers to that same behavior. And I'm not sure I want to encourage that. So I've noticed it mostly on newspaper as opposed to TV news websites. And it's surprising to me that they would do that. I mean, obviously some TV sites do that too, but they're driving their viewership away. I just, I don't get why they think it's a good idea. They are. It's like I said, I've, I've definitely noticed it more on TV sites, which, in a sense, kind of sort of makes sense because, well, they're TV sites. They do. Right. They've, they've got video, but a lot of the newspapers, they just have a, a, a reporter reading their own story, which is, you know, painful to watch. It's just so <laughs> horrible. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, the, I mean, you know that the word of the last couple of years has been video, video, video. So I think a lot of these news sources, whether they be, um, you know, TV stations, radio stations, uh, newspapers, magazines, whatever, they're all desperately trying to attract more readers by doing what they've been told they should be doing, and that's video. Even a lot of the tech sites that are basically, you know, vestiges of magazines that once were, you go to their sites and yes, you've got autoplay video again and again and again. And sometimes I want to see the video, but let me click play. I can make the choice. Yeah, exactly. Actually, so Mac Safari, and I think iOS Safari too, are, last year rolled out um, a, a stop on autoplaying videos of all sorts. So does, those videos do not autoplay in Safari anymore. Um, so that, that was a, a nice change. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I wanted to add that, you know, there's an economic thing in here. A lot of people who aren't in the business don't realize that advertising runs on an auction system for the most part where the price of ads depends on the demand. So it's not like a fixed thing where it's like two bucks for this ad or, you know, for a thousand uh, ad views or whatever. It's, it, it'll change. So theoretically, if, you know, there was this competition to, you know, have these loud, big in-your-face ads to get the clicks, um, if those ads are just not available anymore, then, you know, you may need to run two or three or ten times as many non-obtrusive ads to get the same number of clicks. But you're still, you're, you know, the auction system is going to fix that. You know, you're competing with other people for those clicks and you'll still be able to sell your products or, you know, promote your, you know, service or whatever it is at this, should be at the same price economically, you know, in the auction system. So hopefully that's what will happen by, by stopping this, arms race of more and more obnoxious ads having a limit to it. Yeah. I, I even don't like that Google is letting them kind of flash or change the image around um, at least for a little while when the ad first comes up because I'm very visual. It's very distracting to me. I don't like it. I don't want to see it. And I will literally on my phone just kind of put my thumb over the screen so that it can't flash at me. And, you know, I do notice the ads without being flashed at, but, you know, but they're, you, they're just trying too hard. So it's, they're trying, but, you know, in the long run, they're succeeding because part of this right. auction process is... It works. You know how this works, right? You test things. You test this approach and you test that approach and you eventually end up adopting that which gets the greatest reaction, the most positive whatever your, your, your desired outcome is, be it a click or a purchase or a whatnot. So we have to believe that, you know, those flashing ads, well, they're flashing because they get people's attention and they click on them. Those autoplay videos, well, they autoplay because that's the approach that gets more people to look at them or to watch them or to release. At least they them. think it does. How, however they measure it. I'm not even necessarily saying that all the measurements are accurate for sure, but generally they're measuring something and they're tuning that something based on our behavior. And in a lot of ways, it's our behavior then that's um, uh, driving advertising. I mean, we've all, in a sense, become ad blind to the old static ad that sits in the corner quietly not doing anything. And that, in the long run, is kind of sort of what's hurting us now. 
Yeah, and, and looking at the the actual rules for what's happening, according to this, there's the, the, the standard we were talking about. It's called the Better Ads Standards. And Chrome is actually going to look to see if the uh, if the site fails the Better Ads Standards. You know, it's on a, a list of, of that and will block that ad, um, block that request. So... So in other words, there's no magic to it. You could still see one of these annoying ads if nobody has reported it and it's not made the list. Um, so yeah, interesting. Interesting times for sure. I do I do know that advertising is a mess right now, and yeah, you know, and we all are in that same boat where we've been getting advertising revenue for a long time, but it's also a mess on our side where it's just not not really a, a viable way or it's certainly not something we want to do to our sites to get the kind of responses that these people are apparently getting with these annoying ads. Right. If I, if I can toot my own horn here for a second, of course, I'm very pleased that last year, at the beginning of the year, I got rid of ads off my, my MacMo site um, by becoming a, you know, a Patreon supported site. And that was like my main, my main reason for wanting to do that. And sure. It's just, it, and it was so nice. Not only did I go down, you know, the, the, the page loads faster. It's not annoying. Um, there are no ads for things that run counter to what I'm doing. Like I'll talk about how you don't need a, a Mac cleaner program. And on the very page with the video of me talking about how you don't need one, there's an ad for a Mac cleaner program. Right. And of course you do get some people that actually will say, Hey, you endorse this you know, this thing on your site. I'm like, no, I never did. And of course it turns out that they just saw an ad and took that as an endorsement. Um, and of course, in addition to the pages loading faster, uh, I was interested to see the number of cookies that were stored. Um, and with the ads on there, I, I monitored about the week before I shut ads off and a typical page would load about 40 different cookies. Um, these wow. were Google and all of these Google partner networks. So right. Google has so many partner networks that they work with. And every time you load a Google ad, something is being set in a cookie for those different networks. And I was getting about 40 of them. And when I turned it off, I ended up going down to one tiny little cookie for, for Mac most, uh, whether or not to show a little, you know, sign up for my newsletter thing. And then um, a, a YouTube cookie, just to, you know, cause you could set things like your preferred volume level and your preferred uh, you know hd or sd and all that and it saves that in a cookie and that that was it <laughs> those little cookies there were all that was left once yeah. i turned off ads it's interesting i've done something similar but different um again with that patronage bottle even though i'm running it myself now um people i mean any kind of patronage or heck any kind of product purchase from my site um, i turn off ads for you for you specifically um, after you've made the purchase and you know, yeah, it, it's, it's a better experience. It just is. You get to focus on the content. The pages lay out better. It looks better. It's easier to read. There's nothing flashing in your face. There aren't any of those very same um, contradictory ads. Uh, you know, the ads that go completely counter to the very topic you're talking about. Um, what I don't know, I haven't done the cookie measurement and I'm not sure that, um, I've done anything to dramatically improve uh, the number of cookies that are left because while I turn off the ad display, I'm still including the, um, uh, the header information, the stuff up top that pulls in the, uh, 
you know, the, the JavaScript and so forth that were there any ads would be used by, uh, by the Google ad network. I might have to look into, uh, into streamlining that. That's, that's a good idea. Yeah, that could, that could help. And it, cause it also loads us, I think JavaScript libraries and maybe a couple other little things. Um, right. And I guess I still do have the Google uh, Analytics cookie. That's sure. the th- third one that's set my site. But, but anyway, uh, speaking of, of Google doing things, Google made another change that really has, uh, has irked some people. I think you got that story, Randy. Yeah, and that's not something they've done with a browser, but at Google itself. And a lot of people don't know you can actually search specifically for images on Google. And to do that, you go to images.google.com and you can describe something you want to see. So I, while you were talking, I went over to that site and I typed in Leo Notenboom and I have a whole bunch of pictures of Leo. Oh my gosh. Including, <laughs> including the Leo on the uh, second line, a picture of your dad, who is also called That's right. Leo yep. Notenboom, Very cool. a picture of your Microsoft badge. My God, <laughs> you're young in that picture. Um, and what you used to be able to do is if you selected one of those pictures, you could say, search for this image, show me where this image is showing. Um, and it would also show you things like, well, here's a very high resolution version of that image. And here's a lower resolution image, but they don't do that anymore. And that's the big change is you can't really then see, well, where else is this image? And apparently the reason they did this is because Getty Images, who has bought lots and lots of different archives of images, like from newspapers and uh, TV stations, TV networks, is being very aggressive about this. They are very litigious. If you use one of their images, you can expect to hear from them uh, fairly heavy-handedly. And, you know, it's their copyright. They own it. They bought it. They need to monetize it. I can't really blame them for that. But this is Google kind of kowtowing to them instead of doing what I would prefer, which is just not showing Getty images. But that's kind of hard, and this is easy. The workaround is you can use some different browser plugins to get the function back, or you can actually just download that image Go back to images.google.com and you can just take that image and drop it on that page and then it will search by image, which is something else people didn't really realize they could do. Hmm. So it's an interesting change. Uh, It's making researchers really grumpy because what I usually used it for was trying to find the original of some picture. So if there was a picture on a news story or something, usually it came from you know, the family submitted the photo if it was something wacky that happened at their house or whatever, I would want to say, well, where did this photo really come from? And I would do some research that way. And that's a lot harder now, but it is still possible to do with these kinds of workarounds. So, you know, is it really uh, a big help or is it just a pain? And I, I come down onto, it's just a pain. Yeah, and it didn't really solve the problem. As you point out, anybody with any kind of knowledge about how things work can just as easily get that, you know, get that image back. The only thing they really removed was a direct link to the to the raw image, to the unfiltered image. 
and um, you know the unresized whatever the original image. And like I said, like you said, there's there's half a dozen ways to go back and get that if you want to. I struggle with the concept of just removing Getty. Um, I'm not convinced that that actually wouldn't have been easier, uh, only because they all come from one place. Don't they all just come from a Getty or a set of Getty domains? Um, that seems like that would be really easy to... Uh, well, except that people license the Getty images, like, for instance, a newspaper might say, well, we want this old picture of JFK or something like that, and they will license that. So then it's not on the Getty site. Okay. It is actually on the newspaper site or whatever. Right. Um, could Google then say, oh, yeah, it's a Getty image because it's part of this library? They could. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's you know, not. It's not as easy as it. You're right. I think removing that button was probably easier. Well, it's a big computational pr- problem that Google is actually pretty good at, and they could do it if they really wanted to. But you know, they then again, also, they do they also, want to put the resources to it? They could also mandate that. Hey, if you don't want your images to show up in image search, throw this in the metadata, and we're done. Right. You know. I mean, that's that. that there's lots of different solutions for this. Um, I suspect that they chose this one not because it's technically feasible or easier or anything, but for the exact reason we're talking about it now. And that is lots of people start talking about it because they want to, um, they want to expose the issue, the underlying issue. I've long told my readers that, you know, if you can see it, you can copy it. That's just the way yes. the internet works. If you, can, if you can put it up on your screen, there's a way to make a copy of it. And a lot of people go through a lot of machinations to try and you know, prevent things from being copied. Um, they'll spend like lots and lots of money on technologies and time on, on developing custom solutions and whatnot. And it's, it's almost trivially bypassed in almost every case. So I don't know. It'll be, it's interesting. Um, I, like I, I mentioned somewhere that it took less than a day for someone to develop an extension for Google Chrome that put the button, right. that put the button back. Which so, you can get from the Google, from Google yeah. Chrome store, which <laughs> Google runs. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I downloaded that. I don't do nearly um, as much uh, image searching as you do, Randy, but it's still, it's, it is darn convenient to be, able to, uh, to be able to reference the original image from wherever it might have been located. So mm. interesting problem. And, Ultimately, you know, Getty sees themselves as being um, advocates for copyright protection. And, uh, you know, I guess the rest of us who, who might see this as a futile move in that direction uh, see it as kind of a misguided attempt that runs against all practicality. Well, I don't need to beat that one to death. I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing. And, uh, and we'll see if Google backtracks or just says, Get used to it. Yeah, or here's the extension. <laughs> well, let's uh, move on. Um, we've talked about the Falcon Heavy launch a couple of times already, but there's another new little website, which is kind of cool. They're using data from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory to display where the heck it is. Not the, the launcher, but actually the Tesla Roadster that they launched. And that is whereisroadster.com. And as we're recording right this moment, it um, says the current location 
and it gives an exact number and it's going up pretty fast, is just short of 2.5 million miles away. And here's how fast it's going. It's at 2,493,911,913,915,917. So it's going that fast where, you know, two miles in far less than a second. So it is really booking. And how fast is it going? It's it going exactly 7,571 miles an hour. And it does have the metric equivalent of all this too. Now that, the Teslas are fast. I've heard that. It is true. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I don't even know if this one has ludicrous mode. <laughs> There's been a, a whole a whole litany of jokes related to that about how they you know exceeded the warranty within a few seconds of launch. Um, <laughs> Thirty six thousand miles done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of of fast things that that Elon Elon Musk just seems to really like to build fast things, uh, and uh, you know he got the got the car, got the rockets. And there's another project that he's very much involved with and other companies are doing as well. And it's, it's, it's about, yeah, it's about time. We talked about it at the tech enthusiast hour because certainly is one of those areas of, of enthusiasm. Now it's hyperloops. And you, so basically uh, the, the only story this week is, uh, you know, a, a permit was issued for a, a build starting to build a hyperloop um route from Washington DC to New York, but you know, apparently it's just one of many permits that are needed to actually start doing it. So not a huge story this week. It's not, not like anything's actually going to get done, but hyperloops basically, if you, if you don't know their technology is basically this, it's a tunnel built under the ground or along the ground at least, uh, that is vacuum sealed. So the air is removed at least mostly to reduce friction and then there's a train or set of cars uh, that is levitated magnetically, I believe, um, so less friction there too, allowing basically these uh, you know cars or, or short trains to be shot through the these tunnels at incredible speeds, like airplane speeds, um, but along the ground. And they allow. And it's for, kind of like those those tubes at the bank where you're you're shooting those little capsule yeah, of pneumatic. your deposit, yeah. thump up up the tube to the teller on the yep. drive through, and and they're run by electricity, so you know you could power it with whatever generator that you want, um, and they're technically no reason we can't have these other than the fact that they haven't been built yet. But what they would do is allow for incredibly short times. Like they estimate that this route from Washington DC to New York city would take 30 minutes and it would stop in Philadelphia. So, and Baltimore, I think too. So you're talking about an incredibly short period of time, not achievable even really by aircraft. When you take into account all of the prep time, you know, getting to the airport, parking, boarding your plane, you know, take off, landing, getting off the plane and all that. Security. Yeah, security, all that. It, it, and there's been a lot of talk in my area in, in Colorado about possibly building a hyperloop from either Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs or further, you know, along the front range here, or from our airport in Denver up to the ski resorts, which is like a two, two and a half hour bus ride. You know, you millions of people arrive want to go skiing and then they have to either take these vans or buses or rent a car and spend all this time after a flight just to get to their ski resort. And here they could do it in like 15 minutes on a, in a hyperloop tube. Um, 
So these things have been talked about from California, you know, through to these East Coast routes, and Elon Musk is really hot on the whole prospect, uh, and other people are too. There are other companies thinking about it. Uh, the question is, will this the enthusiasm continue through to actually getting some of these built? And we don't have the super trains like they do in Japan and Europe that travel seventy five miles per hour. Uh, We're faster. Yeah, 175 miles per hour. I've ridden on these in both France and in Japan. Um, And yeah, 175 miles per hour, so fast you can't take a picture out the window without, uh, not a digital picture anyway, without distortion uh, because the the picture uh, scanning from the top to bottom of the CCD trip isn't fast enough (laughs) to capture the image. Uh, A pole going by is looks like it's diagonal instead of vertical. Um, and we don't have those in the United States. So this would be a way for us to leapfrog from the 60 mile per hour trains to the several hundred mile per hour hyperloops um, and make ground transportation uh, feasible yet again. So I have a question. Hmm. I, I don't know if either of you know, what's hyper about it? The speed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And what's loopy about it? Because they go both directions. Okay, because I, I, okay, I'll, I'll take, I'll At take least that. that's the way I understand it. Okay. One of the things I thought was kind of interesting about this whole thing, and, and speaking of Elon Musk, you know, they revealed their semi-truck model that, that the people are starting to put deposits in now. Um, in their quarterly earnings call recently, Tesla said, well, you know, Tesla itself is going to be one of the first users of the semi in order to take the battery packs that are made there in Sparks, Nevada, down to the Fremont auto plant where they're building the cars. But that's only a short-term thing. The long-term thing is they want their own Hyperloop. So the, the concept of maybe doing private Hyperloops is kind of intriguing, too. Hmm. It also ends up replacing um, freight freight trains, basically, because they're talking about a private freight train that just goes really fast under the ground. Right. Yeah, we should note that Hyperloop, sometimes they talk about ones that will just take passengers. Like, for instance, I would imagine the airport to ski resort one would be a passenger type of car thing. But a lot of times they're talked about actually taking automobiles. So you drive your car onto a rack that then is shot through the Hyperloop. And so you drive there. You look, your car with you is loaded on. The other end, you drive off and you you know do the last few miles in your own car. Um, right. So you might be dropped somewhere in the middle of a bunch of ski resorts and then you take the last mile, if you will, to the one you're actually going to. Right. And also, uh, you know, some other things about the Hyperloops are they don't need an incredible amount of space. They can be built, in other words, on the sides or they've talked about underneath highways. Um, you know, it's not like they, they need to just, you know, buy a, a whole bunch of property up in order to build these. And they talk about the stations also would probably be very modest things. They wouldn't be building Grand Central Station type of things at the end of Hyperloops. They would be building something, you know, equivalent to a very small train station kind of kind of deal. Um, One of the things that I find fascinating about the whole concept is, as I understand it, they have actually made some kind of a technological improvement on tunnel digging technology. 
uh, boring company, I guess, is the company that does it, they call it. Um, <laughs> it's probably not something that uh, YouTube being out in Colorado would pay much attention to, but here in Seattle, uh, we have a long and sordid history with tunnels. Uh, we've had um, a tunnel under construction in downtown Seattle for, I think, four or five years now. And it definitely had more than its share of problems, including, I think, a full year while they had to fix the uh, the actual tunnel boring machine. I think a couple of the advantages here, if they've got something that actually does make a dramatic impact on, uh, on literally boring technology, uh, is it may end up being something that impacts projects other than Hyperloop. And the other thing, as you mentioned, Gary, is that these tunnels apparently aren't all that big. The tunnel that we're, we're dealing with here in Seattle is like big enough for a four-lane highway, whereas what we're talking about here for Hyperloop is, I don't know, what, maybe eight or ten feet circum or diameter at most, right? So it's something that um, uh, you know, something small can fit in, but that also means that it's also not nearly as difficult uh, to, uh, to drill. Well, it'll be interesting, since I've, I've seen mentions of doing these underneath highways, um, I was thinking originally that, you know, you have to close down a stretch and, you know, you lift up the highway, you know, you, you do the tunnel and you put the highway back on top of it, meaning lots of road closures. But I'm wondering if this boring technology basically allows them to do it underneath the highway without actually even closing the highway or maybe perhaps only closing it at night and all they need to do is, bas- is stop for the day and the, high, the traffic can continue above, and then at night again they close it, and they keep pouring underneath. Maybe yeah. that's maybe that's why they're so big on doing this under highways. Is I'm, I'm sure that it's it's a drilling it's a it's a horizontal drilling technique um, that doesn't require an open cut, and uh, you know they may end up having to, I don't know, drill down for things like emergency hatches or yeah. If there's, if, I don't even know how ventilation even fits into this equation, but in a traditional tunnel, you would have to worry about things like ventilation and um, uh, if you're going underwater, some kind of flooding and so forth. So, But all they would need to do for that is drill a much smaller hole straight down, possibly next to the freeway that, again, wouldn't, wouldn't involve um, you know, cut and cover or... or that kind of that kind of approach well ventilation's nope. interesting because of course the tunnel itself is a vacuum exactly so that's you don't need to ventilate the tunnel and, and you don't yet, have to worry about fires in the tunnel because there's no air to well it, but do you i mean i'm sure that these are problems that they've thought about but for yeah. example what happens when it breaks down in the middle of the tunnel yep is there I, an evacuation plan is there a way to get air into the tunnel so that people can get out are there doors every so often i mean yeah what if there's a power outage yeah so yeah, I think they've all. I mean, I have in the past read much longer articles, you know, at the beginning of the Hyperloop thing, you know, about how they do all this. And I think there are lots of you know extra batteries, you know, so these things can be self-powered for a given distance, uh, extra air, so that it never runs into a problem with that. Um, you know, escape areas every so often, so that it's it's never really a big issue to. Uh, to turn off the vacuum basically and flood air in and then have people get out in the case of an extreme emergency. Um, it's also, you know, uh, fairly new technology. I'm sure part of the reason they want to build some of these first tests is to actually get something going. I mean, I think all they have now is maybe just some tiny test tracks and they're looking forward to building something maybe that carries just cargo uh, for a few dozen miles so that they can actually see what happens in practice. 
Yeah, there's actually a test tube that is along, you know, above the the surface. It's along the the road next to the uh, SpaceX factory that I drove by because I just wanted to drive by SpaceX and saw this big tube that's I don't know how long it is, but some kind of proof of concept that they were uh, running something back and forth through it. And I, as I recall, it was somewhere in the eight to 10 feet in diameter, uh, not real big. And I don't know exactly what they were doing with it, but they did build it and apparently uh, used it for some, some kind of test. Yeah. Well, it should be interesting. Hopefully this is the kind of thing that doesn't take 30 years to, to happen. Maybe in a decade we could see some actual routes and, you know, some real change. Well, if Elon Musk is true to form, he'll say five years and it'll be 10. It'll be 10 and that'll be fine. <laughs> Ten's, good. <laughs> Ten's good for me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so let's go from there back into uh, the world of online advertising. Um, yeah, this is a little controversial. Yeah, definitely controversial. The, so, you know, Facebook's got a problem. Uh, they know they have a problem, and everybody seems to be telling them they have a problem. And the problem, of course, revolves you know around all this political news of of foreign interference in uh, you know politics in the United States. Uh, and right at the forefront of that are, is Facebook advertising, uh, where uh, you know foreign uh, interests may have purchased ads on Facebook. Or I guess now we know they did purchase ads on Facebook. And uh, to influence political elections, which, you know, back in the days where, you know, if you wanted to purchase advertising, it was in a major magazine or in a, on one of the three TV networks. Um, it would be pretty obvious if, a, you know, somebody wanted to influence the election from outside the United States and purchased ads. But today when you could go on and, you know, with, a, a, you know, any kind of payment method, sign up for Facebook or, or Google or whatever and, and just throw some ads out there. Um, it's really easy to kind of hide who you are and, and sell these, uh, you know, buy these ads. And apparently that was done quite a bit. Um, so Facebook wants to fix this. They're trying to come up with ideas how to fix this so that uh, political ads can't be bought, you know, in, in mysterious ways. Uh, you're, I think we're supposed to know who buys, who pays for uh for political ads yeah. in particular, yeah. Yeah. So Facebook has, you know, they're just getting started, I think, in trying to figure this out. And an easy thing that they, they are throwing out there uh, that they say they're going to do right away and before this next election, which, you know, would be later this year. The midterms, yeah. The midterm uh, Senate and congressional elections. Uh, they are going to do confirmations, address confirmations. And this is being done using a tried and true technique that's been around for a long time. I've done several of these, not just for advertising, but for other things. Like if you're on Nextdoor, you know, the popular, uh, you know, site for, you know, sharing information with your neighbors and stuff, they confirm using a postcard. And basically, it's a simple thing. You, you say, hey, I live at this address. And they say, great, we want to believe you, but just to make sure, we're going to send a postcard to that address with a PIN number on it. And then you have to enter that into the website with your account and confirm that you are at that address. And I've done that for things like I remember doing it for confirming a business address uh, with Google Maps. So Google, you know, in Google Maps, you say, this is my business. I'm located here. And it says, fine, we're going to send you a postcard to this address. And if you know that code, then 
obviously you're the person that gets the mail there. So Facebook's going to do that for political ads. You take out a political ad and they're going to want to confirm that you're actually at that address. And I assume then be able to say that that address isn't in the United States or that it's not. Um, you know, it was kind of interesting because last week I happened to log into my AdSense account. Yes. Because right. I host ads on various websites mm -hmm. and it said that my payments for carrying ads had been turned off until I confirmed my address. It's like, well, wait a minute. You've been giving me payments for years. What the heck's different? What's new? And I said, I, I haven't gotten any postcard. And then I looked in the small print said, we sent the postcard to you on this date and it was the same date. So it, I just happened to log in the same day that they did so, this. That's and so I need to go get the postcard and, actually, and my PO box. And I don't think you do. I think that was an error. Oh, really? I had the reverse. I actually had the reverse. I got this postcard. It's got a pin on it. And I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I logged <laughs> into my AdSense account and there was nothing about it. So, and you're right, Gary, that yeah. I just logged into AdSense and it is not showing me that I need to confirm. But we'll see if I get the postcard or not. Yeah, I, I've been actually, out of town for a couple of days, so I don't know. Yeah, because I got the same thing and I've been waiting for that postcard and thinking that I wonder if this is one of those messages because this is a message that appears on the site. Um, and, and I'm wondering if it's one of those things that went out by mistake uh, to, you know, because I've been with AdSense for 15 years or whatever. And sure enough, when I checked today, uh, it show if I look for that message, it, I believe it shows that a, a green check mark as if I did, as if I did it, <laughs> hmm. uh, which makes me think that. Right. Uh, I think the bottom line is that it shows that they're paying attention to this and they're setting up systems for this even if they don't always right. do it right. Yeah, it, it actually, I just found it here. It says, you know, the same message, your payments are on hold because you have not verified your address. But now it shows a green check mark and says resolved. And I never got a postcard. <laughs> I never entered it in. And of course, uh, you know, my, I guess I'll see with my, when my next payment comes through. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so my address has, you know, been, so to, to go back to the Facebook and political ads yeah, yeah. part of this discussion. So I don't know that verifying a physical address actually adds any value. A political ad isn't directing somebody to some specific place, some physical location. It's not basically, it doesn't have to do much of anything other than express a, an opinion or an interest or a vote for me kind of message. So what's to prevent um, an organization, I'll just say an overseas organization from um, getting a P.O. box near their embassy, renting a po post office box somewhere mm -hmm. and having one of their agents periodically grab the mail. Yeah. 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 Nothing. I don't think it's much help. I, I think you're right. And they even admit that this is not a perfect solution. Um, and also it is not for like, political ads in terms of issues it's political ads directly in terms of candidates so and we know that a lot of political advertising that goes on even though it's obviously for or against a candidate either you know a major candidate like a senate race in your state or it's especially if it's a presidential race um it'll talk about issues and not mention a candidate but it's obvious that uh that ad is is really 
pushing one party or the other party, um, or maybe an issue that that candidate has spoken out for or against. Uh, so this happens all the time. So if you do those ads, apparently you don't even have to still don't have to confirm your address. It's only if you say you know so and so for Congress or whatever. Well, and good point because just before we recorded, I got a. Uh a headline from the New York Times, and I'm subscribed for, to their news flashes. And the headline is, Twitter accounts suspected of links to Russia quickly moved to exploit the Florida school shooting, using it to inflame the gun control debate. So it's not just about candidates. They're trying to just stir up all sorts of strife. I, I, I don't think Russia has any care about pro or anti-gun control, but they are doing some interesting things about how they can rile people up. Yep. And I, I actually have a, an interesting thought on all of this, uh, what Facebook could really do if they really wanted to stop all this. Um, it would be interesting if they considered banning political ads from Facebook. And, you know, the history of banning political advertisements, you know, there are countries that do this that you just can't do political advertisements in that country. There are countries that do it in some sort of measured form, like certain types of political advertisements or within a certain amount of time before an election, um, you can't advertise. So all the media, all the websites, newspapers, TVs, TV sh uh, stations, you can't do it. Um, the United States, of course, we don't have that uh, for freedom of press and freedom of speech issues. However, there's nothing to prevent a private company like Facebook, Facebook or from Twitter. deciding that they don't want to deal in political ads. They certainly have the right to do that. It's the, the government can't make any rules about that. So if Facebook decided to take that extreme measure and say no political ads, um, it ha would have a couple, things, a couple effects. First, it would uh, solve this problem for Facebook without having to worry about all these details. I disagree. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, in terms of advertisements. It, I, right. They, What's okay? Great. What define an ad? Well, uh, it's one you purchase on Facebook. Can you boost great. a post where you so, say I'm pro yeah. or against this, and or yeah. or you don't boost a post. You just get everybody in your organization to sign up for their personal Facebook accounts and start posting the same things that would have been carried in oh, the sure. ad. Sure, and that's not an ad. So you it's know, not clearly, an ad, but it's exact same content with the exact sure. outcome. But you can't. So, you can't have a foreign government or even somebody locally just saying, let's boost this by just spending cash. Right. That's fine. That's great. That's wonderful. Facebook makes less money. It's not like they need right all the money. But in, if you say that it's going to solve a problem, I got to disagree with you. Yeah. It mm -hmm. doesn't solve the problem. It just changes, it changes it. How, the, how people will approach the problem. And there's plenty of different ways that aren't ads to achieve the same results. Sure, but it does solve the advertising problem, is my point. But um, my point is that that doesn't yeah, matter. That's, doesn't that's matter. a meaningless problem okay. to solve if you and, have all these other easily accessible ways of, um, of uh, you know, achieving the same result. And this just goes to show that this is a difficult problem to deal with. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, our communications are worldwide now, whereas before they really hadn't been. And uh, this is one of those problems that, and frankly, I'm surprised it took so long for this to rise up. I mean, this started around 2014, really came to a head in 2016, but there was no reason that this couldn't have been something that started up 10 or 15 years earlier. I mean, it didn't to some extent. I'm sure there were some 
you know, some of this going on then, but it, it didn't, it, it's surprising how recent this problem is. So Gary, I interrupted you. You said there yeah. were two things. One was you know, that it solved the problem. Oh I, yeah. And I gently oh. disagreed. And the second point? Well, actually there are three points. The second one's really easy. I, I think it would help Mark Zuckerberg sleep better at night. <laughs> if, <laughs> if he knew he wasn't taking money, you know, he's like, well, I, I know I'm not taking money from, you know, Russian agents trying to do this because we're not taking money from political ads anymore. So, uh, but the third reason is it might make Facebook just a much uh, nicer place to spend some time. Um, if you didn't, if, you know, the ads on the side were for, you know, cars and vacations and, uh, you know, new computers, yeah, gadgets, Mac and stuff like that, and weren't about politics, especially considering a lot of political ads are not, uh, they're not goal-based. In other words, like a, a gadget ad may be, hey, buy this gadget, cool, cool watch, cool tablet, you know, buy it. But a lot of the political ads are just there to rile you up to, to upset you or to you know get you energized or not about something so they tend to be negatives uh for me you know when i'm looking at facebook it's like i want to see what my friends are up to i want to see what's going on locally what concerts are playing or what's happening around town i don't necessarily want to deal with this kind of thing right now um so anyway could could make facebook nicer which means more People might spend more time at Facebook, which actually may end up increasing Facebook revenue uh, rather in the long than run. Yeah. I'll, uh, so Good you point. can actually solve that problem, the advertising problem on Facebook at a personal level at least. Yeah. Uh, add-ins like Social Fixer and FB Purity um, will both filter not just ads, but also posts um, based on topic. So one of the things that made Facebook a much nicer experience for me was to uh, just check the checkbox that said, turn off all the national political stuff. And, uh, you know, all my friends ranting about whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't see those. And that's that actually does make Facebook a much, much nicer place. I agree. Oh, I, I wish that was on, on mobile. I wish that was on their app, too, because uh, that's the problem. It's uh, right. You have to do it on your computer if you're going to yep. use that. Right. Well, let's change topics. I think we should talk about something we haven't really addressed before, and that's an Elon Musk project. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't mentioned uh, Elon Musk. Uh, who who, who is that again? So far. Yeah, yeah this, it's this guy. Uh, but I think this is really fascinating because I live in a really rural place, and my internet sucks. Uh, listeners might notice once in a while my voice kind of breaks up, and it's because I don't have much bandwidth. But SpaceX is planning to do this constellation of something like 14,000 little tiny low earth orbiting satellites to provide high speed internet to anywhere in the world. And they're starting with their next launch, which I believe is scheduled for the 21st on a regular Falcon 9. Not, they don't even need the Falcon Heavy for this to launch a couple of these satellites, which will be in polar orbit so that eventually they cover pretty much everywhere on Earth to provide a test for this system and uh, see how it works. And they're not the only company that are doing this, but they're the only company doing this that have their own launch vehicles to send them <laughs> up without having to pay exorbitant launch fees. So, so I, I think it's fascinating and, and very promising that they want to do this and have this up and running by next year, which is perhaps another example of Elon Musk uh, uh, 
being overly optimistic, but you know, even if it doesn't happen until 2020, that's still pretty darn fast. Yeah. Have they defined what high speed means? I have not seen that. Um, I have seen that their orbit is something like 450 miles. There's actually two different orbits, which I, I don't recall now. And one of them is 450. And I think one of them is 725 or something like that, which is interesting. I'm not sure the exact reason for that, but, um, well, I think there's a lot of, of lower low Earth orbit stuff in the 100 to 200 mile range. I know that's where the uh, the ISS flies, and uh, they're in the 250 to 350 range. Yeah, I thought they were a little lower. Anyway, but point is, I think that 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 to me is one of the challenges. As soon as you mentioned, what was it, 14,000 satellites? I mean, yeah. I realize space is big, but um, it's getting pretty crowded around here. <laughs> well, so I've read some things in the past about this, and I don't know what the speeds are when they say high speed, but I do remember being impressed like that they're serious about high speed. It's not, it's not going to be a, a slow network. It'll be pretty yeah, it's fast. not 10 or 12. It's more no, like it's, 30 to 50 or more. It, it's going to be fast enough that, you know, you, you could watch your Netflix and do all that stuff and maybe beyond. The other the, thing um, is I've heard a lot of people say, Oh, but satellite stuff, it, it's so slow. And, the difference, you know, these these altitudes we're talking about compared to the satellites that provide internet service now, which are in geosynchronous orbit. What's the what's the altitude of geosynchronous, Randy? Twenty-two thousand three. Way up there. Yeah. In order to be far enough away from Earth that it stays stationary above North America, um, it's far away. And part of that, plus the fact that it's one big satellite or a couple big satellites dealing with a lot of traffic. Uh, and a little bit older technology slows things down, which you don't notice if you're loading a web page, but if you're trying to play like a game, you know, and it, there's a little bit of a lag time. I think these low orbit satellites, I think they, they don't have that problem uh, or they're not supposed to. The other thing I love about this is, of course, the since they, they're flying, they're orbiting, they're not stationary because they're in low orbit. They're right. basically forming this network, uh, this like, it's just a, a mesh web, almost yeah, it's a mesh yeah. which means that while i'll be able to use it here in denver colorado the uh the i'll be able to use it just as easily in the middle of africa in the middle of the pacific ocean um you know it, it'll be kind of a universal thing it'll be an equalizer it won't be you know big cities in rich first world countries have fast internet access and everybody and else. to heck with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. This will be something where it will be uh, the same price, at least for service, uh, you know, to provide that service everywhere in the world, uh, which I think will be great for worldwide economic growth. Well, and not necessarily. I mean, they could say, you know, the United States, you're going to pay 80 bucks a month. Yeah. In Africa, you're going to pay eight. Sure, that's they what want I'm saying. To. The, ser- the, the what it'll cost them to provide the service will be the same. They right. can decide, and hopefully they will decide, that the price it depends on the you know the the value of currency there. You know, the price price of a of a meal is going to be different in different countries. So why not the price right. of internet access uh, also? And if they could afford to do that, and if they're competing companies, if SpaceX does this, and also another company does this, and then they compete, and then they're still competing with cable networks and DSL networks and other things than, uh, it, hey, if, even if the competition just makes my cable internet better, I'm a, you know, we're all winners. In <laughs> yeah, that game. Absolutely. So I, I looked one, at, 
and I looked it up, uh, the geosynchronous orbit is approximately 22,236 miles, and the space station is at 254 nominally. That They go up and down right. a little bit depending. But Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how, much, how far away those... So it's, well, and, and 254 is pretty small. If you get yourself a globe and measure yeah. out 250 and then turn it perpendicular to the globe, it's barely over the skin of the globe. Yeah, just right above the atmosphere almost. Yeah. Um, so, Gary, you were mentioning how this would be an equalizer in so many ways, and I absolutely agree. But I think there's got to be a few, I'll just say, world leaders who – might be a little annoyed by that potential because now all of a sudden, um, you know, they've had some kind of control over the ISPs that operate in their country or, um, you know, the internet in general in within their country. And now all of a sudden there's this great big internet in the sky over which they have zero control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ain't that a terrible thing. Oh yeah. Well, I, it's, it's, I it's an interesting problem. It'll be really interesting to see how they react uh, you know, everything from, you know, the Great Firewall of China, right? You could, what you can and can't see within China uh, is, is you know, tightly controlled by their government to places like uh, North Korea, where there essentially is no internet for the average person. Um, these are places where I think it'll, uh, it'll have some, some imp- or the potential at least is there for it to have some dramatic political impact. Yeah. And uh, another thing we should mention from the tech standpoint is that these, uh, Randy, you mentioned how small these satellites are. Uh, they're really, they're so tiny that for the most part, they won't actually be riding as payloads themselves. As a matter of fact, this launch that's supposed to happen hopefully on, on Wednesday was the, uh, the most recent launch date for it. Uh, it's actually launching another, a, a big paying customer satellite. Right. And, and, these, and these are just hitchhikers. These are just, they could throw, so SpaceX will have that ability to be able to say, oh, yeah, we've got a rocket that's 80% full with one satellite or two or three satellites and fill every available space with these smaller ones and just keep launching them like that. I mean, if they want to do 1,400 of them. uh, 14,000. 14,000, yeah. Yeah. So they may actually end up doing some launches where they launch a whole bunch of them, uh, but they could keep adding them on to these existing ones at really no additional cost to them. Well, that, and you know that there, you know, there, there's going to be um, infant mortality, failures in flight, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, being able to more or less continually resupply um, the, uh, the family of satellites up there is also a very lucrative, uh, especially if it's a cheap thing to do, a very lucrative aspect of this, to this approach. Do we know exactly how big those satellites are supposed to be? I haven't seen, but in order to get them into the right orbit, the, you know, the one they're doing on Wednesday is going up with a Spanish satellite that happens to be going into polar orbit, which makes it real easy because these little satellites are supposed to be in polar orbit. Also, if they're launching something, say to geosynchronous, they're not going to be able to launch these. But what I heard was that if they decide to dedicate launches to these, they can do it in one or two launches, which is just incredible. Wow. That's That's a lot. And also another thing I heard was the fact that the, this will be a profit center for SpaceX where, you know, once they get all this up and running and they get people subscribing, um, they plan on rolling that money into the company's mission of going to Mars. 
Right. So you'd, you'd actually not only be getting internet service, hopefully a good quality service for a reasonable price, but you'd be funding the future of humanity. Right. So it's not only the internet, it's the interplanetary net. Yeah. Cool. So Very cool. Very enthusiastic about that. So do anybody have any projects you want to talk about before we wrap up? They only, I don't really have a project, uh, but I did want to talk about, you know, uh, I've been having fun with the HomePod, which is something we haven't. Oh, yeah. Mentioned. But, uh, yeah, I got my HomePod on launch day and uh, have been uh, enjoying and rediscovering music. You know, I it was a, a great weekend after I got it because I considered it my job to test it as much as I could. So I basically sat and listened to some of my favorite music uh, from further throughout my life at a pretty full volume. And I was like, well, have you done cool. a review of it or anything like that? I, I don't really do reviews and everything. I did go and, and, you know, talk about it to my, my group uh, uh, on Patreon, uh, giving them, you know, some of my thoughts. And I did do a video on how to do, you know, how to control it and everything. So, I mean, my only review of it is, I guess, what I'll, I guess that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I mean, I like it. I, uh, I definitely think it's the best sounding device of anywhere near that sound, that price range and size. I mean, it, I would imagine my home theater system with some big speakers uh, down in the basement probably still beats it easily. Um, but, I mean, that could, that's got a lot of watts to it and everything. Right, but this is basically Siri in a box, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, its main thing really is to be a, a music player. You know, the whole thing, it's all speaker. You know, it's seven speakers in an array with a, a woofer in the middle. Um, it's really built to be a music playing device. It really is only useful if you have Apple Music because that's where it's pulling the music from as well as your own iTunes collection. But it's meant to work as an extension of Apple Music, you know, which is a subscription service. Uh, you know, if you, you have Apple Music and you have a place like my office, for instance, that I want to fill with music all the time, um, it's great. It sounds great for a single speaker. Uh, it's loud and it's very clear. Uh, I listen to everything I could think of that I enjoy from, you know, uh, all sorts of rock and roll to jazz and uh, classical and um, you know, just about everything that I like. Uh, and there was good stuff. I mean, there's some stuff, definitely songs that I've listened to my entire life that listening to th them through the HomePod, I thought I heard more uh, than I had uh, heard before. And, you know, I have some really good headphones as well. Uh, I kind of collect headphones. It just It's one of the gadgets I like. So I have like a drawer full of headphones. And one of the things you forget with headphones is you don't feel the bass. Even if you hear it in your ears, you don't feel mm. it in your chest. And uh, with this, you definitely do. It's very bass heavy. And when playing uh, music that, that's using that wolfer there, you definitely can feel it in your body, uh, which makes me want to use headphones less um, and use this more. And, and Siri's, you know, fine. I mean, Siri doesn't do anything that it, Siri didn't do on the iPhone. Matter of fact, it does slightly less than it does on the iPhone. Uh, but it is nice to have Siri act as your DJ and just be able to say, you know, hey, Siri, play, you know, whatever. And the uh, it does uh, do an impressive thing. When you actually talk to Siri, uh, you could do it at normal volume, even if the music is very loud. So the music could be so loud, I can't hear myself talk. But, but it can. If I say those words and I think there's no way Siri heard me because I didn't hear me say that, sure enough, it changes the song or 
does whatever it you know I asked it to do. Wow. So it's kind of doing its own noise cancellation for itself to be able to hear. That's it. impressive. Yeah, that's that, that's kind of nice. And other people have reported that, which is the only reason I even thought to try it. Um, so it's it's fun. It's fun to be able to, to play it, and it's been great. A great week and a half of of basically giving me an excuse to go into my music collection and really re-listen to some things that I haven't listened to in a, in a long time. Um, and it's perfect for my office. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I've got that home theater system in the basement, and it, but that's not in my office. I need something in my office to listen to music and it doesn't take up much space. It, uh, it sounds great. Um, and, uh, and I imagine if, uh, the only thing that prevents me from not, ha- you know, saying, oh, I'll get another one for, you know, the living room or something like that is the fact that, you know, I, I've got a family and we don't always agree on what music to listen to uh, or whether to have music on at all. Well, and they are uh, a little bit pricey too. Yeah. They're, well, it depends. You know, it really depends if you're an audiophile and you're used to dropping sure. thousands on, on just a speaker, you know, spending $350 on a music playing device is nothing. So it, there's a lot, you know, like with a lot of Apple type products, like it's very similar to the Apple watch. There were people that said $350 for a watch. That's crazy. Cause my last watch was 15, a $15 Timex. There's other right. people that said, well, my last watch was $2,000, you know? Yeah, and apples and oranges there. If you excuse yeah. the pun. And it's the same thing for the, the home pod, you know, and the, it's got one foot kind of in the audiophile market where it's saying, you know, you know, this is a high-end audio device. Uh, and another, you know, foot is in this, play, trying to play in the same space that the the Echo Dot for $50 or less is playing. Uh, so, and, and a lot of the reviews I've read haven't been very fair. Like, I read this one review at a major site, and right away the guy admitted to not being an Apple Music subscriber and not having all Apple devices. And I thought, what this clearly the HomePod is not for you. <laughs> it was not designed right. for that. So right away, uh, you're not going to get, you know, a good, it's, it's like saying, oh, I'm going to review a, a pickup truck, even though I have no use for one and I don't drive one normally. It's like, well, why are you or, or, pickup truck? or reviewing the Echo when you don't have an Amazon account? Yeah, exactly. So, so it's like, yes, this is a device that definitely is for people that are completely all in on the Apple ecosystem. They have an iPhone, they've got a Mac, they're using iCloud, they have an Apple Music subscription. That's who it's designed for now. It may change in the future. I mean, the Amazon devices didn't have anywhere near the capability they have now when they first launched. And Apple sure. may come out with a $75 small version of it or a, and a $2,000 super audiophile multi-speaker system You know, in the future. This is their first such device. Um, yeah, give them time. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm enjoying it. I, I like it. I, I, I don't think this is one of the purchases where I say, well, I had to buy it because, I, you know, I cover Apple and I, I, I advise people on Apple things, so I had to buy it. And like with my Apple Watch, it went right to the drawer as soon as I was finished learning how to use it. This is a device where I can say, you know, uh, I think I would have bought this regardless, and I'm going to keep using it. So anyway, that's my... That's what I've been doing on the side, just listening to lots and lots of really good music. Very cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. That's Leo, do you have anything you want to add? Only, only a small one. I think it's going to appeal to you and a very small segment of our crowd. Um, I actually sent an email the uh, day before yesterday um, without using the internet. Uh, it was my first foray into 
um, doing digital comms over ham radio. Ah. And because uh, the um, emergency management group that I'm a part of here, uh, they just happened to have a class. You know, they went over this technology uh, at one of the uh, uh, one of the recent meetings. And a friend and I looked at it, looked at each other and said, you know, we're all over this. We can do this. You know, we can install software. We know how to do drivers. We know how to make things talk in Windows. And that uh, was actually kind of cool. So, yeah, Randy, if you ever get email from me uh, from my call sign at, uh, at windlink.org, that's, uh, that will probably have been sent over the air and not the wire. Very interesting. Yep. The, the reason, by the way, for doing this, the reason for having this is, um, again, it's the infrastructure problem when there's a natural disaster of some sort. Right. The one we, the one we work for here in the, uh, um, um, in the Pacific Northwest, of course, is the big one, the earthquake. At which point, you know, electricity goes away, the internet goes away, cell phone towers go away. Um, you have nothing. Uh, ham radio is point to point, so we could talk to one another. And as long as I can reach one of these um, uh, stations that supports receiving this digital digital data uh, that does have power and is connected, then I can still I still have this opportunity to reach out. And there's a very good chance that I will because this is the technology that our own Department of Emergency Management has settled on. So all of the different cities in this particular county um, will have uh, that technology up and running in case of an emergency. So it's all cool stuff. Very neat. Cool. Gary, are you a ham operator also? You know, I, I, I did have a ham radio license when I was young. And I let it. I let it lapse. Oh. I didn't. I didn't use it. Um, so yeah. And Kevin's out again this week, but uh, he's also a ham. He's a so, ham yeah. and I'm a ham. Leo's a ham. So it's one way to get the word out if you really need to in a disaster. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we can wrap there. I think yeah. We're good. All right. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com/teh12. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. See you, everybody.